0: If you would not mind standing with me in honor of God's Word, we are starting a series in the book of Ephesians called The Spirit-Filled Life, and we're going to start with Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. to the praise of his glory. Can you believe this is the text for the children's service? What a mouthful. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, you call us to love us, to love you with all of our hearts and with all of our minds. Father, I pray that you would speak to heart and mind today, that we would be in alignment with your heart and with your mind in all things. Father, please. Um, Let your Holy Spirit calm each one from all distraction and let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We ask all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the title today is Spirit-Filled Theology. Paul is writing from a Roman prison. He is writing what would be called an encyclical letter. It is going to the church of Ephesus first, but this is for all of the churches in Asia Minor. These are all Gentile churches, and he's writing for them to share this letter, which he did with several of his letters, and so it's written by Paul in the first century to these Gentile believers in Asia Minor, but Paul's not the only author. The other author is the Holy Spirit. The other audience is you and me today. There is a lot here for us to look at. Spirit-filled theology. Theology just means the study of God. First, the importance of theology. A.W. Tozer said this. This is in The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what, when you hear God, what comes into your mind, that is the most important thing about you. Here's what he also says in that book. No one can fully know God as he is. We will actually be discovering for all eternity who God is in his fullness. He is infinite, and so it's gonna be a long process. But he says this, no culture, no people, no church can rise above it's image of God. You can't, however close you're, the, what you think about God is close to the reality. That's how high you can go or how low you can go, depending on what your thoughts are about God. Theology is extremely important. Secondly, why it's so important. Your story has been when you got saved, when you gave your life to Jesus, got connected to a much bigger story. Of God's redemption. This bigger story is very exciting. It's about God's love, it's about God's grace, it's about God's plan. And it's that bigger story and having our hearts filled with that bigger story that brings life and joy and meaning to our smaller story. It gives life to most of our lives are very mundane. We're doing the same thing. We go to the same job. We've go, got the same family. We feed the same kids. We go through these motions, and that's our story. But when it gets connected to this bigger story, it gives us life. That is called your testimony. Yours, it's, it's, it's the story of how the, your story connected with the bigger story. So here's what Paul says in Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 15. He's talking about the armor of God and he says, With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So our feet. To be fully dressed spiritually, your feet need to be fitted with the gospel. Fitted means it's your story. It's how your story connected with God's story. And the readiness of the gospel of peace means this is part of what we're doing right now. Wherever we go, we are carriers of the good news. It turns out that that big story of God's love and God's grace and salvation in Christ isn't just about you. It's about everybody you know. It's about every family member. It's about every uh, worker, every student. There's a whole bunch of people out there that don't even know there is a big story. They are living in a very dark, oftentimes confused, purposeless little story wandering around in circles. And God has given it to us that wherever we go, our story is going to connect with their story. They're a student. We're a student. We work there. They work there. We're in this family. They're in that family. So we've got connections by our story. And then from those connections, we can tell them about this bigger story. The one that brings meaning, the one that brings joy, the one that brings forgiveness, the one that brings everything they need. That's why it's part of our armor. We need to be ready to share the gospel wherever we go. We are the carriers of gospel. The gospel just means the good news. Okay, third reason why it's so important. So Paul, he's in a Roman prison, and he starts this letter, and he just, I mean, You read those first 14 verses, it's like one run-on sentence. Paul is so filled with this, he can't stop. And he does does it for three chapters. He gushes on who God is and and his plan is and how rich his grace is and how it all works and the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel and who we are in him and our identity in him. And and he goes on for three chapters of just theology. And then he says, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore because of the first three chapters of who God is and what he's done and this amazing God. Therefore, walk worthy of the calling by which you have been called. And then he spends three chapters talking about how to live it out. We call this the spirit-filled life because God wants us to live out of this place of theology, this place of identity, this place where we are filled with our calling and he practically wants to live it out. And Paul goes area after area. First, it's how to live it out in the church, how to live it out in your relationships, how to live it out in your marriage, how do you live it out in your family, how to live it out in your workplace. And then he ends with how, the warfare that is around that you're gonna have to defend yourself. And, and it's all about, for Paul, a spirit-filled life A life lived that is worthy of the gospel. A life that is not just behavior modification, but it is, it's, it's fueled by this worship that, that you have in God and this identity that you understand in God. So theology is absolutely critical for us to walking this out. All right, point two is called an unnecessary offense with God. All of us should be very grateful for Martin Luther and John Calvin. They were not the only ones, but they were certainly primary people that God used to rescue the gospel, to rescue theology from, at that time, um, superstition, from experiences, and from tradition. These guys came along and they said, uh uh-uh, uh, nope, nope, nope. Everything needs to be measured by the Bible. Sola Scriptura. Martin Luther said, "Go ahead and correct me. Tell me where I'm wrong, but you have to use scripture." I can't and and it, the church had just had gotten lost. And so these guys brought back theology to being centered on the Bible. I am so grateful to them and I have so much in common with Calvinist today. Um, God-centered, grace-centered, scripture-centered, and this, this last one, this call to all of the people of God to be unoffended lovers of God. We are the clay. He is the potter. Our part is to yield to God, not to judge God. Get over yourself. Make God the center, not yourself the center. This is basic Calvinist teaching today. And the reason why we call it Calvinist is Martin Luther believed it, and John Calvin systematized the theology and gave a lens called, which is called Calvinism today. And uh, so I've got many Calvinist friends. We've got several Calvinists in this church, wonderful people, and we agree on so much. But there is one thing that Calvinists believe, and they, and, and, uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther believed it, and Calvinists today believe it, that creates, in my mind, an unnecessary offense with God. One of the passages that they use is this one in Ephesians. And I just want to be clear as we talk about the unnecessary offense that Martin Luther and John Calvin didn't want to believe this. And Calvinists today don't want to believe this about God, but they're committed to the Bible. And this is what scripture teaches. Therefore, we accept this about God. And here's what they, what they believe scripture teaches. That God, before time, by only his own sovereign sovereignty, arbitrarily chose some people that would be saved. They are called the elect. And then the rest of mankind... We're going to be eternally damned because they were not chosen by God. And so, that God, for no reason other than his own sovereign will, shows some to be saved. Those are the ones that are predestined to be saved. Everybody else is going to be eternally damned because they weren't chosen by God. And you say, Really? Yep. Yeah, 40% of evangelical pastors in America are, are Calvinists. Now, fortunately, most of their people don't know that they really believe this. Most of, the, the, they rarely talk about it, but this is, this is very central to their theology of who God is and how God works. And it, it, it's a weight. It's a weight on them. And I believe it's an unnecessary offense with God. I wrote a book. It's called Confronting Calvinism, Removing an Unnecessary Offense with God. I've got copies of it out there. They're $3 a piece. Um, There's, I don't know, maybe 20 left or 15 or something. They're not, I mean, people are not running out to get books on theology, but if you want one, (laughs) you're welcome to to get one, which will go much more in depth than I can go today. But so point three, what what does the scripture say? where where do they get this? Well, the passage we just read. God's chosen some people, and it's clear he chose them before time. He chose them before the foundation of the world, and he chose them to be predestined them to be the elect, to be the loved, to be the forgiven, to be the redeemed, and this is all to show forth his his sovereign choice. Um, But the strongest passage they use is Romans chapter 9. And this is, this is one that you're like, Pastor Tom, don't, please don't read all that. Okay, you're going to read this a thousand times in your Christian life, and it's going to bother you every time if we don't talk about it, so let's get it over with. Here we go. Romans 9, 14 through 24, Paul is speaking. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has raised, who, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may, might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the Calvinist reads this and says, uh, you don't have to like it, but... Don't twist it. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is how God did it. He chose some to have mercy on, and he chose others to have wrath on, and he is glorified, and he is sovereignly, and you are the clay, so get over it. Get over it yourself. And, uh, but he, we, we need to be very careful when interpreting Scripture. It's very important when somebody in the Scripture is making an argument that you listen to their conclusion of the argument instead of supplying your own conclusion for what what they're saying. Now, in this one, Paul gives his own conclusion. And I want to read the conclusion. And once once we get the conclusion, we're going to go back and we'll be able to understand what the argument is that he's making. So here's the conclusion. Romans 9, 30 through 33. What... Shall we say then he makes all these arguments and then he concludes it with this what shall we say that gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it that is a righteousness that is by faith but that israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law why because they did not pursue it by faith but as it were based as if it were based on works They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul says this in his conclusion God is going to have mercy on those who trust in Christ. Whoever believes in Christ is going to be saved. Whoever believes in Christ is going to receive mercy. He has made and decided it before he made anybody that Christ would be the stumbling stone, The people whose pride stumbles over him are going to experience the wrath of God. Jesus has been set up as this stone of offense, but whoever believes in him is going to receive the mercy of God. This is Paul's own conclusion to why he set up these arguments. So then you have to go back to the arguments. What is he doing in these arguments? Here's what's going on. Jews were raised in, under the law. They have been Jews for thousands of years. The law is everything for them. They are followers of the law, and it's deeply ingrained in their system that they become right with God. That's what righteousness means, by keeping the law, or at least trying to keep the law. They are the people of God. So Paul says this. He says, listen, it doesn't matter what you think. It's not up to you. It's not up to you how God does it. God can have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on. You don't get to set the conditions of mercy. God does. So you need to you need to think, you need to get out of your own thoughts, and you need to look at how God has set it up. And he says, God could set it up any way he wants to. And then he gives a hypothetical situation. What if? What if God... Just did it arbitrarily. He chose these to have mercy on, and these are gonna have wrath on, and all glorify me because God just chose whoever he wanted to. He says, He says, God has every right to do that because he's God. He can set it however he wants to. He will have mercy on whoever he wants. It doesn't matter what you think about it, it doesn't matter what way. God is the one who decides how it is. What is he doing? He's dynamiting their opinion. They've got very, very strong views. Kind of like today, isn't it? Very strong. Very strong in their opinion. And he just blasts this thing out of the, uh, and just says, it doesn't matter what you think. It only matters what God thinks. And he could have done it anyway. And if he did it arbitrarily, and he just chose, I'm going to have mercy on that one. I'm going to have wrath on that one. Then he is God. You would have to just say yes and amen. And then he says, but here's how God did it. God's condition of mercy. Is Christ. He has, he has given Jesus, who died and rose from the dead, and all of his mercy is poured out on those who believe in Christ. And if, if, he, if you reject Christ, you are going to stumble, and you are going to end up being a vessel of God's wrath and God's judgment. The argument goes on for two more chapters, and at the end of chapter 11, he gives another conclusion. They are trusting the law. They believe in the law. And Paul says again and again and again, the law can't save you. The law only exposes you as a sinner. The, the law condemns you. It cannot save you. It only prepares you to, for a savior. Here's what he says at the end of chapter 11. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. He says the same thing in First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is very important that you believe that God is good That God is good for everybody. That Jesus died for everybody. That God loves everybody. That God wants everybody to make it. This is very, very important for your spiritual well-being. God is good. He wants people to make it. It's his plan for people to make it. He wants to show mercy. But he only shows mercy in Christ because he is God. And he got to set it up. And that's how he set it up. And so you say, well, okay, Pastor Tom, great. What, is the, what does any of this have to do with us today? That was the Jews then. They were trusting the law. We're not trusting the law. What does all that mean today? Here's what it means for us. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Here's what it means for us today. There is a natural inclination in every human being that thinks they know how it should be. That good people go to heaven. As long as I'm a good person, as long as I try to do what's right, as long as I'm sincere to whatever I believe, as long as I, whatever you think is right, uh, then it will go well with me. And certainly I will be accepted. It's not going to work. You're going to end up dying with with that theology. And it's really important for us today, because we're very strong in our opinions today, that we recognize spiritually, and I'm going to say this the most loving way I can, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel would be right. It's how it actually is. Because you weren't in charge. God is. God set up a way to give you mercy. There is a way for you and I to have mercy. It's the only way God gives mercy to this planet. And that is through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. If you have a map that's called spiritual life, there is an axe where the treasure is, and that axe is Jesus. You start digging in Jesus, and you're going to find mercy, mercy, mercy. You know what the Bible says? His mercies are new every single day. There is unending mercy in Christ. Now, you can get upset. I don't think that's how it should be. I think there should be lots of axes. I think there should be an axe for every religion. I think there should be an axe for good people. I think there should be an axe. I think wherever you dig, you should be, listen, you're not in charge it's not that way. Sorry. That doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It doesn't, it doesn't mean God loves you. It doesn't love you. It it just means it's going to require a little humility to be saved. You're going to have to move your opinion from how you think it should be to how it actually is. We've all disobeyed. For all of our efforts at being good, we're all guilty before a holy God, and we all need a savior. Thank God that Savior has come. He has come for me, and he's come for you, and he has come for the whole world, Christ God. Okay, so if all this is true, then what is predestination? What does that even mean then? It's because it clearly says he predestined us. What does predestination mean? God predestines events. And then invites human beings to join him in his purpose. But he doesn't predestine people and he doesn't force people. Let me give you a couple examples. Number one, the promised land. So God predestined before time that he was going to take a people out of Egypt and he was going to bring them into the promised land. That is done. That is God's purpose. It's going to happen. God is faithful to his own plan and to his own purpose. So he now invites Moses to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land and Moses Tries to, and the people are get to the edge of the land, and at the end of the day, they become afraid of the giants, and they're intimidated, and and they're, uh, and they end up not not going in. Oh, then God's plan is sorted. Nope, nope. He predestined it. It's just that group didn't get in. He doesn't predestine people. So we got a new group. So now we got Joshua. So Joshua there. He's got a group of people, and God appears to Joshua and says in nine verses don't be afraid. I'm with you. I promise you, don't be afraid. Don't give into fear. Don't be intimidated. Why, did, why would God say the same thing three times in nine verses? Because he needs human agreement for his plan to come to, 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 to fruition. If, if Joshua gives into fear, if Joshua turns back, then that group's going to not make it, and then God will wait for the next group. This is how it works. God predestines events, but he does not predestine people. Let me give you a second example. So in the days of Xerxes, um, there's a sovereign marriage of Xerxes with Queen Esther. Esther is a Jew, but nobody knows it at the time. And this evil guy named Haman makes a decree to kill all of the Jews. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, finds out about this decree and sends a message to Esther and says, Esther, you need to do something. There is this decree to kill all the Jews. And here's what Esther says. The horrible decree. I feel horrible about it, but I can't do anything because if I go to the king without being um, requested or invited, uh, the penalty is death unless he raises this scepter of favor. and um, So I'd like to do something, but, but I'm not going to be able to help you. And Mordecai says this back to her. This is Esther chapter 4 verse 14. If you remain silent at this time, you choose to do nothing then deliverance for the Jews will be raised up somewhere else, and you and your family will perish. But think about this, Esther. For such a time as this, you've come into this position of power. Maybe the whole plan of you having this position of influence was for this time. It's your time, Esther. So what is God saying? Is it all, is God's plan all resting in Esther? No. If you say no, if you choose to be silent, then deliverance will come. God is predestined the Jewish people are gonna make it until Messiah comes. That's gonna happen. You say no, God will use somebody else. But God is inviting you, Esther. This is your only time to live. He's inviting you to use this time, your resources, your personality, your favor, to go for it in your time. And here's what she says back pray for me, fast for me, and if I perish, I perish, but I'm going for it. I'm going for it. This is what, this, I believe this is what God is speaking to every single one of us. I am inviting you to be part of something. All right, let's, let's apply it to salvation. So what exactly did God predestine? Look at this, verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I want you to notice here that it does not say, after you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, you believed. It says, after you believed, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. The invitation of heaven Is by the Holy Spirit goes to the entire human race. Many are called. I believe every single human being is called, few are chosen. Who does God choose? Those who respond to the invitation of the Holy Spirit and put their trust in Christ. When you respond to the Holy Spirit's invitation, the Holy Spirit seals that in you. He adopts you. He comes and resides in you. He puts the stamp of heaven on you. He gives you an identity. Next week is all about our identity in Christ. It's the exact same verses, but a whole different way of going about it. He, He seals you. Many are called, few are chosen. It's how God set it up. So then what does Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 say? Well, here's an alternate reading of Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even as he chose those who believe in him before the foundation of the world that those who believe should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined those who believe for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God set it up that whosoever believes would have all of this stuff. All right, point five, last point. Most important point, the goodness of God. So why... Does the big plan exist? Why did Jesus come and die and purpose to redeem all those who believe? Here's why. Six through eight. He did all of this to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to, listen, the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom And understanding. So God's grace is his goodness. It is his generosity. All of these things are to praise his goodness, his generosity, his grace. All of these things happen, and he's he's lavished grace upon the human race. Do you know what the word lavish means? I looked it up in the dictionary. To lavish means to give with such extravagance that you know some will be wasted. So God has poured out grace extravagantly. Here's my goal for my own life. I want to I have it all go in. I don't want any to be wasted. I want, I want God's grace to be effectual on me. I want God's grace to produce everything he wants to produce. I want the grace of God filling me, filling me, filling me. The tragedy of the human race is that there are many people that have this umbrella up called pride. And the grace of God that's poured out just completely misses them. And they just stay in their own little, dark, independent world, even though God loves them, even though Jesus died for them, even though there was plenty of grace available to save them. Plenty of mercy. But it's wasted on them. The goodness of God. So John Calvin maintained And Calvinists today maintain that the center of God's glory, the centerpiece of his glory, the key to understanding the glory of God is his sovereignty. The mystery of his sovereignty, that God is in charge of everything. He's working all things according to his will. Evil, good, everything is working to good because God is sovereign. Here's the the difficulty I have with it. God himself gives the center of his glory to Moses. Moses, in Exodus thirty-three, fourteen, 14, Moses has said, if I fall in favor with you, show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to have to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And then I will let all of my goodness pass before you. So God's self-definition of the center of his glory is not his sovereignty. It's his goodness. God is good. The Bible says God alone is good. In him is light, and there's no darkness at all in him. If there's one thing you can settle in your heart, guys, it's that God is good. I get that life is hard. I get that life is confusing. I get that we don't understand a lot, but never, ever leave this. God is good. Never put a question mark behind God's goodness. Put an exclamation point. He is good. So here's how I want to end, and the worship team can come. Psalm 34, 8 says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. So I want to tell you about eating growing up. A couple different experiences with eating. One was something called vegetables. Children at large have problems with vegetables. Parents insist that children will eat their vegetables. Why? Because they want healthy kids. You've got to have vegetables to be healthy. So you are not leaving this table until you eat those vegetables but I want the ice cream, I want the brownie, I want the... Three more bites. And I want to see them, young man. And then we, we all know the methods of putting it in your napkin and chewing it and having it in your mouth and then spitting it out later. We all know that. Okay, so you got these vegetables. This is good for you. You will eat it. And that was certainly in my experience growing up. Here's the second experience. We're Irish. Our favorite meal is corned beef and cabbage. And here's how mom made it. She would put it in in the morning and let it simmer all day long. And the, the smell of corned beef filled the air. She would, mom was very careful. We could not snap between meals. We, it will it'll ruin your appetite. And so you'd come in the house and you'd just be blasted by the smell. And it was just amazing. And a one hour, exactly one hour before we eat, mom pulls the corned beef out to put all of the potatoes and cabbage and carrots in that are gonna cook. And then she says, who wants to taste the corned beef? And Jimmy and I are just like, yeah. (laughs) And she would cut off this little piece and we would taste that. And it was like, oh, I cannot wait for dinner. So here's parents and kids today. Do parents have the right to make their kids eat vegetables? Yeah, that's why, that's why you're a parent. You let kids eat what they want to eat. They're going to eat Doritos and ice cream all day long. They're going to be very unhealthy. So what about spiritually? What about spiritually? Do parents have the right to bring their kids to church and make their kids go to church even though the kids don't like it? I don't want to go to church. I don't, church is boring. I don't want to go to church. Do the parents have the right to bring them to church even against their will? And my answer is, yeah, you're the parent. Yeah, God is vegetables. You need God. This is the one thing you're gonna need. You get God, you'll make it the rest of your life. To be healthy spiritual. You need spiritually, you need to be exposed to God. So yes, you are going, and my kids are like, well, what about having a choice? I say, you got a choice. I, you get a choice every Sunday. You can choose to endure it or enjoy it. Right. It's completely up to you. <laughs> I'm the parent, so you're going. I'm the parent, so you are going to church, but it's completely up to you whether you just hate it every week or whether you enjoy it. Now, so as parents, I just want to give you that right. You have the right to bring your children to church because they live in your home, whether they like it or not, okay? Now, here's what you pray for your kids, that it will be like corned beef, that they will get a taste of the presence of God. They will get a taste of the goodness of God, and they will become hungry for more. That that God won't be their duty, but God will become their delight. That this will be the highlight of their week, the highlight of their life. That Jesus will be the centerpiece of their life. Now, it's not easy being a parent today. Why? Kids are eating a lot of spiritual junk food. They're, they're eating everything all over the place. And so part of this is you got to restrict some of their intake. So this is the point that really hurts. greatest thing you can do for your kids is for church and Jesus and God to become like corned beef to you. I commend you if you're here and you're in pain right now. I commend you that this is vegetables. God is important. The word of God is important. We go every Sunday, and we'll go if it kills us. And you're, you're here, and because it's the right thing, and you should be here, and your wife wants you here, and you're here, and, but I'm going to take three bites, and then I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to take three bites and go watch football. I'm going to take three. I can't wait to get out of this place. Why does he have to talk so long? Why, why do they keep singing the same words over and over and over again and half the time? It's just I'm in pain being here. It's just, God is just like eating your, your vegetables. I commend you for being here. God is important. This is really important. But I'm also praying for you. Because God wants to become your delight. He wants to become corned beef. He wants to give you a taste of the goodness of God. He wants to give you a taste of his word. He wants to give you a taste of his presence. He wants to make you very, very hungry for him. And it's not just for you, it's for your kids. Ultimately, your kids are not going to become what you want them to become. They're going to become what you are. If God is vegetables to you, that he will be vegetables at the best for them. So God wants to take us higher. In, in, a, in a midst of a, of a generation right now that is eating junk food and has lost all appetite for spiritual things, lost all appetite for God. God he is wanting right now to pour. Did you know that you have spiritual taste buds? Did you know that you can come alive with your spiritual taste buds? And you can taste God. You can taste his goodness. You can taste his beauty. You can taste his power. Do you know that God wants to heal our taste buds? Yeah, we got to stop eating so much junk food and... Expose ourselves more. All right. Every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment. So maybe you are here today and it has, you have been confronted with your own spiritual theology. And it's, it's not how you thought it was. I want to assure you that God loves you and that God's plan for you is mercy and is forgiveness. But that is found in Christ alone. The Bible says, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. That is the invitation of the Holy Spirit. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, anyone, doesn't matter how much you've sinned, how long you've sinned, how irreligious you've been, how blasphemous you've been, if anyone hears my voice and opens their door, I will come in. God wants to have mercy on you. He wants you to be part of his family. He wants to give you his gift of eternal life. But you need to open the door. I've got every head bowed and every eye closed because this is very personal. It's between you and God. I have people raise their hands because somebody helped me open my door. And I like to pray with people to open their door. So if that's you, Jesus is knocking. You are not sure you're forgiven. You're not sure you'd go to heaven if you died. But you want to be. And you know he's knocking today. Would you just raise your hand right now, high enough and long enough for me to see it see that hand. I see that hand. I see those hands. I see this hand. God bless you. I see this hand in front. Just raise your hand. up. I got you back there. God bless you, bro. Anybody else by upraised hand? We're going to pray. I got the two in the balcony in the middle of the balcony. Got you. Anybody else by upraised hand? We're going to pray that prayer. Let's get under that spout of mercy. Anybody else by upraised hand? All right, everybody that raised their hand, just slip that hand over your heart right now and pray something like this in your own words. Lord, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for raising from the dead for me. Thank you for loving me and pursuing me and knocking on my door. God, right now, by faith, I open my heart. I say, Jesus, come in, forgive me, wash me, cleanse me. I receive your gift of eternal life right now. Holy Spirit, come and seal me Seal me as one who has believed the gospel in Jesus' name.